Network. Hi, this is Stephen Turek from the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s geek out. We hope you enjoy the show. to episode 15 of Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast. My name is Ian Clark, and I'm joined, as always, by the throw me the idol and I throw you the whip to my whatever comes with that, Mr. A. Bradford Anderson. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have one prepared this morning. That was off the top of my head, and it didn't no, work. That was, so. that was absolutely perfect, because uh, <laughs> since, since we've all received that, uh, I just don't have my whip to get across that little uh, that little pit of death there. So, <laughs> <laughs> Brad, how are you this morning? I'm well. Uh, it's bright and early here in in not so sunny Southern California. We're all now contending with uh, rain that happened last night and rain that's happening today. I know we usually talk, we always preface this show with uh, um, uh, meteorological conditions, and we're at a little bit of a standstill, waiting to see how the day is going to unfold because. There's not a shit ton we can do inside because we're such an outdoor, outside community here. But we're contending and hoping for the best, but expect the worst because m- m- it's the rainy season and winter is finally here. Yeah. Now, so I'm not like a, a especially knowledgeable about you know bike riding culture and that type of stuff. Yeah. So I don't even know. And I know you've got high end bikes that you ride and everything. But does you know? Uh, I know when it rains you know oil and things like that comes kind of that viscosity on top of this you know the surface of the roadways can be a problem so is it even possible for you to ride even those high-end bikes do they not do well when it's rainy funny you should ask so in light of this uh pending rainstorm that's supposed to last for four days you know i got a little panicked and as you know i walk a a ton you know i try to mix it up between walking and biking here in, in san diego and uh, I've got like a little high arch tendon issue going on, which is restricting me from walking the long distances that I normally do. And with the, the rain coming, I uh, looked online and then I had a friend of mine who works at a local bike shop uh, give me a lead on some bike rollers where you basically put your bike on a professional bike rolling system and you can ride indoors. So that to answer your question, I have now solved. And apparently they're they're fairly dangerous when you first start because it's everyone either can go right off them if they're not careful. I mean, you can't technically pedal straight forward because the the momentum is it would be impossible. You can, however, go off side to side. Fortunately, the rollers that I just on mine, they have like lips. So if for some reason you lose concentration, you'll feel that lip and so forth. But I'm also a rider who doesn't always look at the point on the horizon. Uh, as I'm hard pedaling, I'm sometimes looking down at the ground. So I think I might have a better shot because it's like you're back in the day when you're learning how to type, you were kind of looking at your fingers and then you migrate, then you migrate away. So that's essentially exactly what I, what my game plan is, is to have something similar to that where I look, I'm looking down as I pedal and then gently move my head up. And when we say horizon, I'm talking about my, my living room window. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so problem solved in lieu of the, the rain coming. And yeah, I can take the bikes out. I don't like taking them out. I don't have beater bikes anymore. I had, I used to have one beater bike, 
but I sold that actually a couple of months ago and all my bikes now in, do fall, as you say, into the higher end category. And they're just, uh, it's a real bitch to clean them, especially this oh, time of year okay. all the, the, and because the sand becomes mud and then mud gums everything up and it's just a, it's Gets a half the gears and everything. Exactly. So I'm, and, and most of the bikes are fixed gears, so fewer gears, but there's all other things that, you know, I'm pretentious and anal to the point where I'm using Q-tips in between <laughs> some of the, the chain lengths just to get some of the gunk and gum out there. So it's making it a lot easier now that I have this indoor trainer. So when inclement weather does hit and we are in the season for that, that it's just going to be a lot easier for me to have options to ride and watch tv and listen to music um in my kitchen versus you know having to try to forge outside in the in the weather and so forth so yeah nice well if you're going to be sticking around I, I didn't know if you listen to podcasts when you ride i figured it was probably more music i'll send you i keep meaning to send you the links for for some of those um good uh episodes oh, of yeah. astonishing legends yes that'd be, that'd be good yeah good riding in your in your uh, apartment um, right. No, and I and I and the, and the nice thing is now I I can you know I've got all the 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 little gizmos to uh, to cast and stream to my TV so I can actually just get stuff you know which is great coming out of the TV now versus before when I didn't really have that option. So yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, well, that sounds fun. That'll be good. At least you can you know you'll still stay active, which I know is important to you. Super um, important. <laughs> yeah, you were asking me how long I've been up. I had a weird night because i did i don't know if you saw on facebook i posted i was asked by um uh, a comedian friend of mine a guy named john poveromo uh he's out of jersey um but he works you know nationwide he a couple of years ago came up and worked a club up here in rochester new hampshire that i um worked at a lot pre-pandemic um yeah. and i was the opener for him one night and he he and i had hit it off um he came up and headlined that same club a few other times and every time uh, he did. He requested me as his as his opener. So uh, he and I have gotten to be good friends. He is a part of a world a, a Guinness World <clears throat> Book of Records attempt that is ongoing right now for the longest comedy po- uh, podcast stream. They're doing like 78 hours or something like that. Started so on Friday. Fun. Yes. Oh my yep. God. So it started Friday and it goes through Monday night. Um, and John asked me to be on. And oh, wow. they're kind of slotting it. There's like I don't even know how many, but there's some there's some big names on there. Not like not like sure. huge huge names. Not like Seinfeld or anything like that. But like Dave Attell and oh yeah um, sure yeah. So oh, so cool. John asked me to be part of it. Uh, it's for charity. Uh, it's for several um, kids cancer charities. And I thought yes, I'll definitely do it because obviously for charity I'm glad to help. But also it's kind of cool to you know if it if it goes through to be in the Guinness Book of World wow. Records would be kind of cool. Um, yeah. But the the time slots would be, and then you would see your name down. I on, think on, I don't know. Either way, it's not. That'd be know, great. Not, that's yeah. not a big deal. But um, so I was happy to be part of it. Uh, but they're trying to schedule it and kind of comics drop in, drop out. Right. Um, but uh, so he's like, he's like the only time I have right now. He had like Monday a lot Monday, but I'm like I'm I work, so I I, right. I couldn't do that. So anyway, I ended up doing from 1.30 in the morning to 2.30 in the morning last night. So oh my, your time. My Jeez. time. Okay. Yeah, Eastern. Wow. I was like, I was like, where are all these West coast comics? <laughs> why, why am I on? But, um, <laughs> but I was on with a bunch of other people and, and, and John and it was cool. And we just kind of, some, some guys did material and stuff. I didn't really want to do that. I just wanted to kind of be on and chat. So we chatted yeah. and stuff and I may, I may pop in later cause he's, they're doing shifts. There's like five of them that are kind of the, 
the right. host taking it through and he's on later so i may jump on but i was it was like eight o'clock at night mm-hmm. and i'm like i can't i'm not gonna be able to make it it's it's almost six hours before i'm gonna be on so right. Right. i actually went out and tried to sleep and i slept for a few hours and got up and did the show for an hour and wow. went back to sleep and got up this morning. But I actually, I think total wise, I think I probably got seven hours. So I'm okay. It's just, right. it was so disjointed well, and I'm right. You know, we'll see if now, I want to nap later. Are you, able to, are you able to kind of, when you said you're going to log back in and check in on them, can, are, do, are they okay with everyone just coming back into the, into the mix for that time? Yeah. yeah because like, like I asked John when he's hosting, just so there's at least someone that I know or have worked with. Um, right. So, and he's like, yeah, he's on from noon like for a huge chunk the rest of the day so so yeah i may pop in or i told him like if if he gets light you know if there's only you know if he's if he's down to one or two and he wants someone to pop in to just shoot me a text um he's a big big comic book guy too so we can we chat about that type of stuff so um but it was super fun and there you know there's there's just a lot of cool people involved so um so i was happy to do that and it's it's on uh it's on twitch um that they're doing it so yeah so so yeah, that was that was kind of my thing that was going on last night. But um, we are here to talk about the 1981 masterpiece, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Boy, I I had seen it recently. We'll talk about. You, you said it had been a while when we were talking before we started. Yeah. Recording. Um, I had seen it um, probably last year. I want to say last year because like my my kids had seen it, but they hadn't seen the sequels. So we went back and okay. watched. Uh, Raiders and then watch the the rest of them, not Crystal Skull. Um, right. But um, the the older sequels. Uh, yeah, we we don't really talk about some of those newer ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't hate it. I know it's gotten a lot of hate, but um, I saw it in the theaters and and that was enough for me. I don't really feel a need to revisit it. And maybe I should to see if that's it's... noble of you actually going to the theater and not waiting to have. <laughs> I was it. excited. I was excited for a new. You know, we didn't know it wasn't going to be that good so <laughs> you know, i was excited to see it but um so i had seen raiders fairly recently but what i like to do when we do these deep dives is to you know take notes and try and look at things a little differently and try to put yeah. myself in the headspace of someone who has not seen the movie before and with this one i was able to do that pretty well because i i noticed some things that i hadn't thought about or, or noticed in the past so so that worked out um well for me we 1981, Brad and I were, were talking about how many great movies came out in 81, and so we're, I would – I think 2021, because it's obviously the 40th anniversary of any of these 1981 movies um, – I think we're going to end up doing a bunch of movies this year. We'll we'll bounce around and do other things. Oh, We've yes. obviously still got music we can do. I mean, it's nice we can do the year 1981 in music because that's obviously 40 years ago as well. But there's some great movies, and, and Raiders was the one that we wanted to kick it off with. And uh, so, Brad, you, you were saying it had been a while for you. Yeah, no, I, I want to say goodness. I mean, with the breadth of movies that are out there and stuff that keeps constantly coming out, you know, I never fully abandoned the classics like Raiders, but – I think it's been at least 10 years because I was really surprised by the volume of segments that I just didn't remember. And I actually – it's funny. I, I know for a fact I've seen um, uh, Temple of Doom way more than I've seen Raiders for some Oh, reason. really? Yeah, which is – and I just think that back in the day when – you know, I, and I equated to you know initially when my folks – when we got the – I think we've talked about this before – the mega satellite dish, the one that's you know, <laughs> almost the biggest the Hubble telescope – in our backyard, so we had access to, you know, HBO East and West Cinemax Showtime, and they would, you know, run their movies in a very formulaic uh, fashion. So, you, if you were into a film, you could seriously watch a 
up at, uh, a current movie that was released through them or a movie that's in their uh, in their catalog and archive probably several times a day because they run it every couple of hours based right. on the cycle. So I would say, you know, Temple of Doom more so would be one uh, that I've seen uh, than, than Raiders. So it was kind of a, a super delight to go back, sit and just actively watch it as everything unfolds and just see how amazing it is. And then c- coupling the viewing as I'm doing the research in real time about, you know, all sorts of it from, you know, from the direction of it, the concept of it to the players and then other stuff. It was just, it was just phenomenal. And I'm thoroughly glad we, we actually chose this one because this was a really great, superb adventure film in the early 80s. Oh, for sure. For sure. And um, it's funny you mentioned the satellite dish thing. That's something we haven't talked about, but that that was a fascinating thing when we were kids. I think having that satellite dish and like I, I had I had a friend in in town where I grew up um, who had one and the big thing was he would invite us over for the um, this was toward the mid to late 80s when I was more into wrestling but he would invite yep. us over for the wrestling pay-per-views sure. I just oh, remember yeah. that thing like I knew like I had a friend who like their neighbor had one and they could go over like, like baseball wise I'm a New York Yankees fan and uh, and this friend is as well mm-hmm. so he the neighbor had it and, it and he's like oh I can go to their house and they get the Yankees game live broadcast right, right. from out of New York. And that was always so fascinating to me. So, so well, that's cool that you guys had that. Yeah. And it's just amazing because the, and the story behind that is we, the cable company uh, at the time, Beeline Cable, whoever it was in Skowhegan only came to one end of Bloomfield road, which is now Stevens road, but it only came up to literally the edge. And obviously now everything has changed. That was, you know, billions of years ago. But so my folks decided at one point, it's like, well, we want to enter the market. You know, they're not going to, you know, straight run cable down our uh, down our road, which is just about a mile long. And we were about, I would say, probably about literally halfway of the mile mark. So my dad did the research, found, um, you know, I think it was Deanna Washburn's dad uh, was the was the vendor who helped facilitate getting it set up and everything. That's and funny. Was, I remember them having a massive dish. Yeah, in there. yeah <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. and this thing basically, I mean, it was, you know, not to, to, to diverge too much, but, you know, what having this really opened up a world of visual culture for me that, you know, living in Maine, you know, we had some limitations and restrictions based on what was featured on TV, but the satellite dish was pulling in feeds like, you know, like you said, from all over the country, but all over the world, based on, you know, what you had access to. And we would get like a weekly size of a catalog of the stations and all the shows that were available. And there were a lot of times satellite dishes, satellites in space that you could hook into and, and you know, and connect with, with that were up and coming that didn't really have a catalog number listed to what's on it. And you would find stuff from other countries and other TV shows that are just showing up for the first time in England on these satellite dishes. So it was quite a remarkable thing that opened up my movie world. And I think it really fostered and built my love of movies very early on um, when we got it, because it, you know, I'm now seeing things for the first time, but also going back and scanning and using, you know, the, their version of the TV guide uh, to, with, which was like over a hundred pages long, to be able to find out all these amazing movies that you never saw in there. Now you're watching them in real time as much as you like. So it became a very good tool for me to learn. So, yeah. Now, did you, did you get to watch some, some UK footy as well? Was I did. I, it's amazing. It's funny you say that because I did find UK footy. I did find 
European footy, which I, which I, I wasn't into as much with mainland Europe, meaning, but I was able to watch some early matches. We were able to watch World Cup things, you know, FA Cup things, things that, you know, matches that I just wasn't super familiar with at the time in the early 80s. You know, I had heard the name Manchester United, but I didn't really know much about them at that point. But being able to watch games with players that early on, not really connecting with the players, but just being a lover of what we call soccer here, football there, it was amazing to see it live um, broadcast through a satellite dish. I mean, that it was like the limit. It was like the possibilities were endless to be able to watch live European soccer, and especially from the UK. And it just, you know, like I said, complete technological game changer in our household. And it made it very difficult to when my parents wanted to go up to camp and there's movies on to watch. And all we were going to do is watch, uh, you know, VHS rentals at from Jim's Variety up in Athens. <laughs> like, no, I think I'd rather stay home and watch some some TV on the salad dish. And um, and that, as I got older, it was just a no-brainer to basically want to, you know, learn and experiment and and and, uh, and just go through. And sometimes you just find random stuff you want to watch. Like, oh, that's amazing. I'll just sit and watch this. And you just get in, engulfed. So, yeah, very yeah. cool thing to have in our household. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, quick divergence to satellite TV, but it's funny. But that's what this podcast is about because I hadn't really thought about that. But, but that was a thing. Like that was one of those things that seemed so unattainable. And I lived in the middle of the woods, and I've talked about it yeah. before. I, did, I didn't get cable until I was in junior high. Yeah. Um, and satellite, I don't even know if we would have had enough clearance to point one because I right. – trees and everything no, you know, maybe, the clearance yeah. Is open. <laughs> yeah we had the stream in front which was obviously open but I, I don't even think that probably pointed in the right direction necessarily sure. so. right, but, right. Um, anyway raiders good of the stuff. Lost Ark. <laughs> good stuff old boy <laughs> um so first off i, I want to just talk about something that and obviously indiana jones has become an iconic character in pop culture and i think this goes without saying but i think it bears mentioning Tom Selleck was originally the choice, and again, I don't know. You always hear certain things. Oh, he was doing this. He was doing that. But uh, supposedly, it was the contract with Magnum PI mm-hmm. that um, prevented him from taking the role. And Lucas was apparently George Lucas was apparently reluctant to continue using the same uh, actors. But but Spielberg, I guess, was was interested right. in Harrison Ford. My point being, if if Tom Selleck plays this role, this character is not an icon. I and that's not taking anything away from Tom Selleck. He, I think he's, right. he's good and he's he's done, you know, he he's definitely had a, a body of work and continues to work today. Right. But he's not he's not Harrison Ford. And um and, and and yeah, I just I just think and coming out of Han Solo, you can certainly see <laughs> you know echoes of that character but at the same time yeah. a much different character and um i don't know there's a couple scenes i'll talk about but overall i don't know that harrison ford gets the credit he deserves for, and i'm a huge harrison ford fan so mm-hmm. that, just take that with a grain of salt going in but i don't think he gets the credit for this role that he deserves i really don't that's that's interesting you say that because it you know i think you know that was this was you know again earlier on in you know his you know big film movie career you know he was just uh you know and i everything you say about him coming off the role of Han Solo, but uh, it's funny because with, you know, him not being on TV, whereas Tom Selleck on TV in the public conscious on a weekly basis, you know, I can, I could see him in the role. I mean, it'd be weird to see him with a mustache. I mean, maybe a goatee, but, uh, but back then, I don't know that that's a really good point because, you know, he, it was, they, they were kind of opposites in the sense that Selleck was more TV based, whereas obviously Harrison Ford completely in, in, engulfed in movies and, 
kind of climbing up that ladder of really big hits one after the next, that he would have added a, a different a different uh, caliber. And I don't necessarily think the adventurer portion would have come out. And even if even if all the other components were still there with the uh, the supporting cast um, and Raiders and the director and 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 the writing of it, but uh, you know I think it would have been an entirely different creature altogether. So they tried to shoehorn him into kind of a similar character in the movie. I'm, I think it's called Quigley Down Under. Um, yes. Obviously, probably not anywhere near the caliber of writing and all that. So that that's no. there's a ton of reasons why that movie isn't you know on the on the same scale as Raiders. But it is interesting that they almost tried sure. to be like, oh, we wanted him for this. He can do this. Let's see what he can do. And then they went back and did that. But um, right. yeah. Right, right. And and again, to, you know, nothing against Tom Selleck. I just think I just think Harrison Ford just is Indiana Jones, just like he is, is Han Solo. Absolutely. It's uh, where an actor defines the role, the role defines the actor, and it clearly, in those two cases, there couldn't have been a, a better person to play it. Yeah. So uh, so the movie opens. We get kind of a neat intro. It's obviously in the uh, South American jungle somewhere. Um, we don't see Indiana Jones for a little while, uh, and then we kind of see him from the back or silhouette or whatever. Um, but and again, this is a character that's become iconic, but I can't think of a better establishment of a character and who a character is than the first like five minutes of this movie. I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, they went, went once they, they throw you immediately into the jungle. You know, you see some, you know, some some other people that are part of his party traveling to the jungle, kind of walking around cautiously. And there's just a sense of no, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say sense of danger but there it was definitely in the air you could tell that they were approaching a space that was probably going to be formidable and but at the same point you see the more the fear on the faces of those that are following you know indiana versus himself he's he seems like a very confident adventurer having been on many prior adventures um before this one yeah and this is something this is, again, this is one of those places where I was able to take myself away from the you know numerous times that I've seen it and kind of just look at it with fresh eyes. The the one guy who pulls the gun on him. Why? Mm. Why is he double crossing him? Why, we, we don't really have any reasoning for that. Right. Right. There's yeah, that, that's because usually a double cross means there's a bigger fish that's pulling his strings to make it happen. And that wasn't clear so early on. Um, at all whatsoever. I don't think that was really ever established. I mean, soon we learn, but at the same point, there's really no specific reason why he would have just done the double cross. Right, right. So um, I, I think one of the other things I thought of too, because so then we, we get to inside the um, the temple <laughs> where uh, Indy's trying to steal the golden idol, and uh, there's all these traps, and it immediately reminded me of D&D. And just like D&D, <laughs> you kind of have to have a suspension of disbelief because it's like, how mechanically would any of these traps work? Like, especially the one with the beam of light. It's like yes. the shaft of light coming through and then the spikes come out. Trigger the spikes. I, yeah, I don't how, know. That, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I tried to disconnect myself from that, but I actually had the same thoughts like that. This is an impressive amount of, you know, uh, of, uh, of violent ways to go out. And then I'm thinking, and I was relating it to, you know, the temples that we see in Egypt and how they have like, sometimes have false floors and things like, you know, this had all the makings and trappings of the, the worst cave to find a treasure in probably in the history of the world. So he, <laughs> they, they captured it literally all in one, you know, like 
12 minute segment and like, wow, that was something else. Yeah, it's and you get the you know the darts that shoot out when you step on the the certain spot in the on the floor and then obviously yeah. the giant boulder which is an amazing um and again iconic I'm gonna use that word a lot yeah. uh, iconic scene in movies and much parodied and and copied in other things so um uh, just a great establishment of who Indiana Jones is right off the bat uh, just a cool customer the tarantula is like on his back he's not phased by it no. it's just you know so um. Uh, I noticed too. Again, I'm. I I felt like I did a good job of trying to really focus on details. He, not very long, but probably 15, 20 seconds before the reveal, and he turns around with the tarantula. You can mm-hmm. see a silhouette. There's one on him already. Um, when they're walking through. So I thought that was a nice little touch. It's like, oh, okay, this isn't just like all of a sudden he's got a hundred tarantulas on him. Right. There is like they established that. So I thought that was that, cool. And I had never that noticed that. That was a well-played that. scene too, because I don't know too many human beings who, even if they're not arachnophobic, that would have issues having that many large spiders, regardless if they bite or not on their backside. So. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so we get the escape from the, uh, he, he gets the idol. And um, it's so funny because you don't, again, as a kid, you don't notice these details and on the big screen, it would have been more evident, but, um, you know, growing up with, you know, 19 inch TV was about the best you got. So yep. now watching on a big screen TV, you notice the details. The idol is a fertility idol and it actually, the, the, the little idol, the way he's sitting, he's, he's got a little wiener and the little wiener has a face just like him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you know that, but I it's absolutely know that, true. But that's, I'm going to, I will check that out again. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's apparently a fertility idol. Um, but um, it's very funny to, to like, once you know to look for it, you're like, Oh, right. so, um, so he comes crashing out through the mouth of the tunnel, um, right. through the spider webs with the big, the big boulder behind him. And we get our introduction to his um, nemesis, Belloc. Um, and again, we see the guy that tried to double cross him. He's standing there and we're like, oh, OK, this guy's with these these natives. Right. Um, but then he falls over. He's been poisoned. So, right. again, the implication is. He's probably double crossing on Belloc's behalf, right. but and this is what's happened to him. But I don't, I, I still don't think it's super clear. So that was that was interesting. Um, but we get the introduction to um, to Belloc. Um, is it Paul Freeman who plays him? I think that's who it is. Uh, great bad guy, great character, oh, incredible nemesis throughout the entire film. Yeah, and 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 his his one liners are just and are fantastic. What, what 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 is the prior one? There's nothing that you can procure that I cannot take away. Yeah, it's, you know, something yeah. to that effect. It's yeah. it's awesome. You know, he's clearly a man who can manipulate a situation or a group of people, as he did in this case, because he had the, the the local native tribe backing him to basically you know steal the idol from Indiana Jones. So it's you can definitely he see very early on that they are rivals, but he seems to have more of an edge of working and having larger assemblies of henchmen, in this case the natives, than than the average uh, person going up against Indiana. Yeah. So something, again, I noticed, and I'd never thought about this before, they came in apparently with mules. There's a scene at the start where they're going through the jungle and it gets too deep, so they, they tie off the mules to a tree. Right. As Indiana Jones is being chased by the Jovitos um, – he runs past the mules, so he's he's going past. Right. But he goes to a river where there's a plane waiting, a two-seater plane. Right. So it it occurred to me, it's like, I was this the plan all along? Obviously, this guy's waiting for him, but what about the right. other people? It's it just seemed very. I, and again, I'd never thought of it before. He's right. just, he no. runs, 
they didn't all come in on this plane. No, and I thought that I, that's really good you say that because I I did notice that you know that that there were at least four in Indy's party, including the pilot, and then now there's only a two seater, and that would have been physically impossible to be able to get those four in there. Like, did they just meet up in the jungle with yeah. those other two guys? And yeah, clearly they hired guides or but right, it was, it yeah, was strange. And, yeah, and they're and they're deep in the jungle because obviously the the native indigenous population are, are definitely as tribal as it gets with the bowl cuts, the spears, the blowguns, and the very small pieces of leaf covering their general area. Yeah. So they're deep in it. It's not like they're just on the edge of a city. They're way away from society. So to have that actually be the case, like, you know, I, two airplanes would have been more feasible or some type of pontoon airplane bigger than the one of a, a boat two-seater. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A boat yeah. would have been more plausible. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the Jovito's um, outfits, um, it's an audio podcast, but Brad and I do videos so um, so we can <clears> see each other. So Brad is the only one that gets to enjoy my Jovito's um, cosplay that I'm wearing, and I promised him I won't stand up and turn around. So, um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that was interesting to me that it's like, I, again, never thought about that's a, a, you know, another part of the movie that's very memorable is him swinging out and getting on yeah. the plane and the snakes on the plane. So you, that's how you learn of his phobia of snakes. Right. Um, the other thing, too, I thought, and again, we see as these movies progress that Indiana Jones has these contacts and people all over, you know, that, that he works with. But Jacques, the, the pilot, yeah. never seen again, never seen again. Very minimal. I don't even – he barely has like maybe four – like three or four lines in the whole film. And you know, and we see him basically on one of the pontoons fishing and apparently looks like he's caught a big fish when Indiana's barreling down the hillside to the river's edge basically. Like, yo, go. Start the plane. Start the plane. <laughs> and I, want, I just want to point out that how and, – and again, we're going to overuse the word iconic, but this film has inspired so many – not other films but other segments in other movies. Yes. I mean I, like when I saw – you know, obviously the, the the cave scene and, and avoiding all the all the the dangers and the and the perils inside. You know, I immediately thought, okay, this influenced Down the Road Goonies, which came out in '85. Sure. When I see when I see Indiana running with the natives behind him, that influenced, in my opinion, I don't think that I think there probably is a correlation. When uh, Jack Sparrow from Parts of the Caribbean is running down the beach and he has the entire native population of that island space chasing him, so you you see these cycles of things coming back, and and those are you know small but big scenes in the scope of things because they're setting up the stage for the adventures that he's going to be going on and the people he's going to encounter, and I saw those immediately from other films that are you know in the near future and distant future from when this one was released. Yeah. Yep. For sure. For sure. Uh, so now we cut back to the States. We see Indiana Jones as a professor. He's a professor of archaeology, clearly at a teaching at a um, at a college. And uh, we see that some of the, the young ladies are enamored of him. Um, but I, I like this scene because it is it establishes the the mundane aspect of it for him. Yes, yes he's out there, you know, in, in crazy adventures in life and limb, which he which he comments on. But this is more his real life and he, and him imparting his love of archaeology to right. um to these kids. So I, I think that's a great scene. We get introduced to Marcus Brody here, um, who was a contemporary of his father's uh, that we learn later in um, Last Crusade. And speaking of Last Crusade, Brody is interesting because Marcus Brody, he's a great character in this. He doesn't have a ton to do, but right. he's he's very important, um, played by Denholm Elliott. Yeah. Later, he's not in Temple of Doom, which is a prequel, um, but he is in Last Crusade. In Last Crusade, they make him kind of a bumbling fool, and it's very strange. Yes. 
I, that's really funny you say that because he, you know, he's uh, the uh, the curator and also helps fund Indiana's uh, adventures and projects. But yeah, no, that's a really good point because they turned him into a complete, yeah, buffoon. And he seems to be very learned, very meticulous the way he thinks and wants to fund and, you know, helps kind of make some of those executive decisions on Indiana's behalf of, you know, is this a good project that we can bring to fruition or do we have to bring in outside sources to assist us? But yeah, that's a really good point that he turned into a character who he really wasn't introduced as in the first film. Yeah. Yeah. So um, then we get a scene where uh, we get government officials coming to, um, to talk to, to Brody and, and Indy. And um, we get a a small scene here with, uh, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he played one of the, uh, Star Wars uh, in the original Star Wars, one of the Red Squadron fighter pilots. He played Porkins. Yes, right. Yeah, um, the heavyset guy. <laughs> yeah, so he gets um he gets uh, uh, a scene. Stay, he, on. <laughs> Stay yeah, on target. He, yeah, eject. I'm all right. <laughs> and then he explodes. Uh, yep. All right. This, I think this scene is fantastic because all it is is exposition for the audience, but the way that it's portrayed and the storytelling of him, Indiana Jones and and Brody imparting the knowledge of the arc to these two government officials right. is perfectly done. And right. this is one of the scenes I wanted to highlight where I think Harrison Ford is phenomenal because this is not an easy scene because again, it's exposition. He's, he's giving information that we need as, as the audience to understand what is going to happen in the movie, right. but it's done in a way that's very engrossing and he he is in the moment and and telling these guys you know this history and shows the picture of the ark and his right. you know in his his book that he's got and yep. they you know hitler being a um you know what they call him a you know a nut for the occult that's actually true hitler was right. was very much interested in all that stuff so there's a ton of great subtle stuff in this scene and i just think harrison ford crushes this scene and, and we should point out that this, you know, this is all taking place pre-World War, pre-World War II. So 1936 or 37, I think is when it, they are the time frame that they're trying to get us in. Yes. So, yeah, we're seeing, you know, um, we learn that obviously with Hitler, Hitler's obsession with the occult early on. And obviously the Nazi party is beginning its growth spurt phase in Germany up until, the, you know, 1939 when the World War II begins. So, yeah, you, we're, we get a really good picture uh, that he paints, and I and I find it it was awesome because when he opened up that mega book, it almost looked like, you know, it was like a 600 page, you know, it looked like the Necronomicon. <laughs> That's an amazing book. Information, yeah. and and yeah. I'm not sure if it was a, some type of Bible, but it obviously they do show the one part where they're they are showing the ark being held by I'm not sure which faction had it, but and it seems to be destroying all of the enemies in the surrounding image. Um, and one of the government guys asks, what is that coming out? And it's like these light beams that were very prominent coming, hitting the enemy that, uh, on the mount they're standing on. And you get to kind of get a sense uh, of maybe for the first time viewer, maybe a foreshadow, maybe just like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Wow, this thing has some type of power behind it. So right. that was a, a, a great scene to kind of lay the framework for what the, the next course of events are going to happen. Yeah, and why yeah. Hitler or any entity you know in power would be would, would be something. interested in? Yeah, yeah. So um, so uh, they get funded for um to send um 
send Indy to try and find what he needs. And then we get our great introduction scene of Marion Ravenwood in Nepal, um, mm-hmm. where she is in a drinking contest with one of the locals. Mm-hmm. And again, immediately establishes who she is. Right. I mean, clearly somebody who has got an appetite, uh, who doesn't back down, and she has a huge set of balls <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to take on. You know, and, and it's because that scene, you know, it, it's kind of poignant in the fact that, you know, they're, they're squaring off across the table drinking whatever whatever adult liquor beverage that is. And you can clearly see that they're both feeling the effects of it because they they drink, they hold the, the shot glass and they turn it upside down to show uh, mission completed. So they're going back and forth and you get to see a very, you know, <clears throat> in control woman who is not afraid to go to the limit. And uh, yep, that's a good point. And. I think you also see that she – we don't know yet how long she's been here, but that mm. the locals are they, – they very much have affection for her. And she's right. – you know, she runs this place, and they're, she's well-known, and they – you know, they're – you know, everybody is um, – uh, it, it, she, is, she is accepted and has been in that community. You can, yeah. you can see that. And again, just great writing because it's established very simply and very quickly. Um so then uh, everybody clears out. Indy comes in and we get their exchange um, where, again, you see what kind of character she is because she punches him in the mouth. Square um, <laughs> yeah. And there's a there's a line that I know has become problematic where they kind of hint at their past relationship and that it probably is what created the rift between Marion's father, Abner Ravenwood and Indy um, and everything. And because she has that line where she says, I was a child. And I think I think some people have taken that literally. I think she's more mm-hmm. talking about emotionally because uh, at at the time of this movie, Nancy uh, or sorry, uh, Karen Allen, uh, who plays Marion, is 30 years old. So assuming she's somewhere in that neighborhood in the right. film, they've yeah. been apart for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So she's at at worst probably in her late teens to early 20s. So right. I don't think that line is as problematic as as some people think. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's more like I, I said, I think it's just more of a, you know, emotionally they were at a different maturity uh, yeah. point. But um, but it is interesting because you get you do get, again, their backstory done very um, easily and yes. and, you know, with, without a lot of um, they don't struggle to establish things in this movie. And that's what I think is is so good about the writing is that yeah. they they set things up very very well with minimal effort so and yeah i mean the flow throughout the entire film is incredible i mean there's no areas where there's kind of drops in entertainment either in conversation or dialogue and and i and and it's funny because you think of other films just not nothing off the top of my head but where you where you begin to become critical like oh this movie's starting to lag there's not one point in this movie that ever lags from start to finish you really get a even flow of action and drama and suspense building throughout the entire the entire movie. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, and it goes back to that scene with um, uh, with the government officials. That scene could be very dry, but it's not. Right. That scene's riveting because you're right. getting you're getting the information, and um, yeah. So yeah, great point. Uh, so they make a deal. Uh, Indian Marion make a deal. Uh, Indy leaves, and then we're introduced to another of the villains in the uh, in the movie Tote, uh, played by Ronald Lacey, um, which leads to, I mean, there's a lot of great action scenes in this movie. Obviously, the fight in the bar is is 
pretty awesome. I had forgotten about that fight and how important that was for a variety of reasons. But yeah, and I and I, and also the the German wordplay, you know, because he's a Gestapo. I think they described him as a, a sadistic Gestapo officer. Uh, tote, the way that it's spelled in German, tote uh, is death, D-E-T-H, so death. So, oh. so the way it's spelled here, T, I think it's a T-O-H-T, tote, yep. is the is the phonetic pronunciation of the German tot, which means death or dead. So I thought oh, that was interesting. a little twist, and because because he is all about death, pain, and suffering, as we've learned fairly quickly. He's uh, not a person for small talk. He's all about, you know, getting the job done quickly and as painfully as possible. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, we get a great um, uh, a great action scene. This scene, too, reminded me that – and again, uh, I mean it ties in because Temple of, uh, uh, Temple of Doom was one of the movies that, along with Gremlins, is uh, credited with creating the PG-13 rating. This movie for PG is fairly violent. Like, I mean, you've got like the this yeah. when um, Cepito uh, at the start, um, played by um, uh, a, a small role for Alfred Molina, yeah. uh, who we know from you know who's gone on to do a bunch of other things. But when he's after the whole throw me the idol throw throw you the whip scene, um, mm. which we kind of glossed over, but that you know that's a good scene because he's double crossed again. Right. When he dies and he finds him, I mean, he's spiked right through the head, the throat. I mean, right. and, it's and in this, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, and then in the bar scene, there's a dude that's like literally headshot. That like where the, like yeah. there's there's a, it's a violent, more bloody movie than than you would expect. Right, and I and that was another thing I had forgotten about the ultra violence. It's not skated over like early '80s TV shows were when you get. You know, if, if you look at like the A team or something like that, where people are getting thrown over the camera or people are getting blown <laughs> up and they're just kind of flipping, people are actually getting physically harmed in a violent fashion, and there's and they make no bones about it. And I think that kind of adds to an element of the danger that uh, that Indiana that where it's again every every incident he experiences is pushing us further and forward to the more perils of just not situations but people that he's going to encounter. Um, yeah, throughout the film. Yeah, yeah, and there's a couple of really, again, small things, but little fun details. Like there's one point where he's in a fist fight with a guy, and the guy's whole sleeve is on fire, and he, he's like sw- just swinging it at Indy and stuff, and his right. he's on fire. And so yeah, <laughs> just just it's it's a really good action scene, um, and sets up that you know the essentially Marion at this point has no um, no choice, and we find out that she's got the headpiece to the staff of Ra, which which right. they need to find out where the Ark is. So um, so so that scene's good, and you know that gets them together and forces them to work together. Um, right. And then we go to Cairo and meet uh, Sala. Uh, who is uh, one of Indy's uh, friends and contacts. And um, again, we get it's it's a scene. It's just them. It's John Reese davies as Sala and, and Harrison Ford as uh, Indy talking. Uh, and it's more exposition, but it's very right. well done. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you, you learn quickly that they're old friends. Uh, they, they And he has um, – Sala has re- leads on kind of where to begin looking for the arc now that they have the, the component headpiece to the – um, what was it? What was it? The, the son of raw staff of raw staff yep. of raw. Yeah. So yeah, you learn very quickly that there's a, a kind of a longstanding relationship with them there. He's very happy to see him They're They're drinking, you know, whatever cocktail of the hour is. And it's a very, uh, casual meeting, but informative. 
Yes, and it's again more exposition. It lets you know the the Nazis are digging here. Belloc is working with them, so it establishes that that you've got two things now, you know, going. Uh, and there's kind of a a race element is introduced, and in that right. you know we need to get to this before they do. So, and again, people are are still after Indy, so you get the great um, street fight scene with, of course, the famous swordsman, the the right. the giant swordsman with the with the massive uh, curved scimitar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the, the of course now again iconic resolution where the crowd parts he's there he spins the sword around Indy pulls out the pistol and shoots him <laughs> and it's well, just amazing it, it's amazing because you know and and I and this kind of ties into because I you know doing a little bit of back reading on um, the storyline it it looks like that Lucas kind of wanted to make you know him you know, Indiana Jones a playboy who had kind of like almost James Bond-esque. I mean, there's yes. clearly elements of James Bond-esque moments in this film, and I think that that's evident, and so he was able to achieve that through the through the, you know, the script writing and ultimately the directing with Spielberg, but but one thing in every James Bond movie, they never, there, there's always this attempt to take out James Bond, but there's like either dialogue, in which case something happens and the bad guy gets bested. In this case, you know, the bad guy clearly has the physical upper edge on him. He's got other minions around him. You know, and Indy pulls out the gun and does the does the thing which the villains in all James Bond movies should do to take him out. Just shoot him. <laughs> Don't talk to him. Right. Don't talk to him to death. Shoot him. But yeah, he handled that. He resolved that, that situation very quickly, you know, realizing he was physically outmanned and, you know, just pulls out his six, six or nine shooter and takes out the guy. So... <laughs> Yeah, and so, like, I've heard varying stories about that, how that came to be, because apparently there was a very deeply choreographed fight scene um, that that this uh, stuntman with the sword had trained for for a long time. Now, one of the stories I heard that I don't believe is that is that um, Harrison Ford improved it and pulled out the gun and, and just shot him on set. That doesn't happen, at least not in that take, because the guy, the, the sure. other guy's not expecting it. He's not going to fall over. The crowd's not going to cheer. That doesn't happen. The story I've heard that I think is probably more realistic is that Harrison Ford had very bad dysentery and was not feeling well, and they were trying to come up with a resolution. And Harrison Ford was oh. like, what if I just pull out my gun and shoot him? Right. <laughs> and, and they were like, oh, that might work. So and I don't you, – you never know. The truth's probably somewhere sure. – somewhere in between, but – but there's a lot of stories about that scene. But to that point, it almost adds, obviously, because you know we're introduced throughout the entire film to bits of comedy, you know, either in yes. dialogue or situation, and that is a very it's 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 almost comedic. He resolves the 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 fight within three or four seconds after realizing he's not going to win a hand to hand combat, pulls out the gun and shoots him. So there's a bit of comedy, in like, well, he took care of that situation very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, great scene. Uh, and then obviously we get, you know, he's separated from Marion. She hides in a basket and is, is absconded with. And we get the scene. They load her, presumably load her on a truck. Right. He's trying to, to stop the truck, shoots the driver, causes the, the truck to explode. We believe Marion is killed. So right. us having seen it many, many times, we know she's not dead. Right. But again, me trying to watch it with fresh eyes. He's obviously devastated. We see him drinking, yeah. um, you know, and he has the scene with with Belloc. And again, it's another exposition, but it's a great and it's them face to face. It's the nemesis and the, the hero face to face. Great scene. Both of them are really good in it. Um, and we get a little more explanation uh, and exposition. But also Indy is kind of rescued by Sala's kids. Uh, he's right. got 
20 guns pointed at him. Yeah. Um, and uh, Salah's kids come and rescue him, and, and he goes. And Salah, it's almost dismissive. Him, you know, Indy says Marion's dead. Salah says, I know, but life goes on. It's it's very, again, knowing that she's not dead, but right. it, in the moment, it feels very dismissive. Right, and, it, and the fact that clearly they both have had a relationship uh, with Marion, and it seems very strange that, you know, we see, like you said, we see Indy who's completely wasted out of his mind and, you know, trying to, you know, drink his, his, his sadness away. And, you know, with Salah, just kind of, yeah, no, I, I agree with you on the dismissive part that, you know, they're coping in slightly different ways. But, you know, obviously he's doing a better job of it because he didn't have, I believe, the physical relationship that Indiana did with her. Right, right. And we yeah. don't know what their background is, how right. well they knew each other. But it kind of continues. The next scene is um is them meeting with the older scholar gentleman to um who's translating what is on the headpiece to the, right. to the staff of Ra. and it's almost like there's no mention of her at that point. There's no even residual anything. It's of, and right. they even get excited when they figure out that the Nazis are digging in the wrong place because um, they, it's a two-sided – there's information on both sides of the headpiece. Right. And of course, Tote grabbed it when it was hot in the burning bar and burned it into his hand, uh, which mm-hmm. is, again, another – one of those things that I think is very memorable from this movie. Um, and of course, the, we see the, 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 the bad guy with the monkey um, – yeah. With the eye patch comes in mm-hmm. and uh, and poisons the dates. The monkey eats them. We get the line "bad dates," which is a, right. a, a one of those quotable um, right. <laughs> uh, lines from this movie. But yeah, I don't know. The whole Marion thing seemed very dismissive. But again, we know having right. seen it many times that she's she's alive. Um, right. Then you get to the map room scene, which is awesome. Indy Sala sneaks Indy into the map room in where they're digging, where the Nazis are digging. Um, Cavern, yeah. Yeah, the great, you know, small miniature of the city on the floor. Indy does some, you know, so he pulls out a little notebook and he finds where's the right place and puts the headpiece right. in. And of course, the the light comes through and shows him where the arc is. The the music in this scene, like the music is, again, iconic, uh, you know, to oh, use yeah. that word again. But the Indiana Jones theme, everybody knows that. Dun, 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 dun. But the rest of the music in this movie is great. And in this scene in particular, I think is very effective. Now, did you – now, I just want to digress for one second. Did you have any Indiana Jones toys as a kid, like the little I had from the, that period? I had a couple. I had Indy, um, which was cool because he had a um, – I was never a fan of the um, – and we may have talked about this, talking about G.I. Joe or Star Wars in our other episodes. I was never a fan of the action feature, quote-unquote, on a, on a, on a uh, figure. But Indy had one that I thought was cool. He had like a almost like a spring-loaded right arm, and you could put the whip. He came with a whip, which was like a, just essentially a string with a piece of plastic. But you could yes. pull his arm back and just kind of snap it forward. And then the other thing was he had a holster with his gun in it, and yeah. you could actually make him almost – it didn't work, but almost quick-draw the gun right. with it as well. So I had Indy. I had the swordsman, and okay. I had Tote, who's not exactly a fun toy to play with, but no. – <laughs> All, all dark and Gestapo-y. <laughs> yeah, he had like the rubber, um, you know, hard plastic trench yes. coat that went over him. Yep. And, um, yeah, uh, I think those are the only three I had. Did Did you have any of them? The only one I had was the Indiana Jones. Uh, it was it was uh, him and his. It was 
finding it was that scene the map room scene where he's in the, the robes and he's, he's got in the, the head. robe yep. and he's got yeah. the, he's got the the, the staff he's, and, and he's got that and he's got and it comes like with the little um playset of the small miniature city that you use oh, to cool. light pass through so yeah that was that was it's funny that was the only one i had but i'm just doing a quick look on on ebay and there actually I, I was surprised that there's quite a few other figures from that line that existed that i did not have but yeah i think i had a a cool one because that moment in the scene in the cave when he uses that to use the the the, the beam of light uh, at the right time of day to identify where the exact location of the arc is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a great scene, and um, yeah, the uh, the music um, is John Williams, right? It's uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, just great, great music. That in pairing that scene. again of John Williams and George Lucas, and yep. obviously uh, Spielberg, Spielberg directing. So yeah, obviously they. That, that little grouping, they've got a really good aspect of writing, directing, and have, creating the soundtracks for these films. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Then we learn Marion's live. Uh, she's being held in one of the tents. Uh, Indy doesn't break her out because his she's mad, but his reasoning is they if she's gone, they're going to immediately start looking everywhere for them. So, right. um, And they need to get into the Well of Souls and, and get the Ark. So um, great scene at night, very atmospheric, um, like lightning in the background, and, and Sal has got his team of people, and they're, they're digging, and obviously um, – you know that great scene when it when it opens up and uh, you know the lightning hits and there's like that big um, you know the the giant uh, statue that's there and uh, Sala's reaction's great. Um, we see the snakes. This is another one of those things. How yeah. how do these snakes live in there? How how does that happen? I mean, there, there there's not just a few snakes. There were hundreds and hundreds of yes. different types of snakes. Asps, I think, uh, is, is identified as yeah. one of them. But there's a at lot least, of other. At different... least one cobra, because that's what Indy comes face to face with. Yes, when he lands, and I, so I'm not 100% clear because they need food sources, and I there's not enough scarab beetles at the bottom <laughs> of that pit uh, for, for them to really you know, be able to survive. So interesting because a lot of those snakes look like they're exotic snakes that you find in the jungle, not in the desert. So right. yeah, it's very, again, one of those suspension of disbeliefs. You can be like, Oh, maybe they, they're cannibalistic. They eat each other. There's still no water in there. There's right. no, everything needs water. So yeah, yeah. it's just, a, it, but again, suspension of disbelief, it obviously sets up a lot of drama because they yes. have to contend with these very dangerous snakes and Indy drops right. in and comes face to face with the Cobra. Um, <laughs> one of the things too. So I, I saw this movie in uh, IMAX. Uh, boy, it was a while ago now, probably, probably at least six, seven, maybe even more years ago. They did an I, IMAX re-release. So I went and watched it on IMAX, oh, nice. which was great. The giant screen. When you watch it on the giant screen, um, the scene where Sala and Indy actually remove the Ark, you know, and they, they put the yes. yeah. poles like, through yeah. and they, they lift it up out. It is unbelievably obvious that every single snake in that room is a rubber snake. <laughs> <laughs> it's like like it was jarring. I, uh, you know, wow. again, you don't see it on as large a screen, right. but seeing right it on IMAX, right. I was like, oh, my God, those are literally just rubber snakes they threw around. And, I think, you know, and again, when I watch it, I'm sitting about probably, you know, eight to ten feet from my TV with glasses on and you get to see some movement of the snakes, the few ones that were, that were yeah. alive in real, yeah. but that's a good point that, you know, uh, which I probably, which I don't think I caught. And, but also reality sets in. It's like, why would they put that many snakes together on top of one another? They're just, you know, kind of coiled up and whatnot. But yeah, yeah I, I could see probably it was a, a budgeting issue. Like we can make, you know, we can put some real ones on top of all the fake ones and just <laughs> right. look, make it look legitimate. It'll look so, fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be high. There's not going to be anything as high definition, you know, 30 right. years down the road. Right. And they're, not, and they're not going to worry about people 40 years later critiquing it and saying, yeah. well, that was kind of a scene that had a lot of question marks over it. <laughs> right. Um, so they get the arc, they get it up. But then, of course, Belloc shows up um, and uh, and seals them in. You get the great scene with with them escaping through the wall where Indy you know, climbs up the statue and gets it moving and rocks it and busts through right. the wall. And, um, uh, Marion ends up in the, you know, in the, the crypt room with all the skeletons, which is, a, you know, a, a almost a horror-esque scene and, and somewhat reminiscent of Poltergeist, um, which would come later from Spielberg. Absolutely. In the pool. Um, yeah. So, um, but, but he gets out and then, of course, they're going to try and escape on the plane. And you get another iconic scene with his fight with the the giant Nazi mechanic, um, who's played by Pat Roach, who was a um, a former wrestler. Um, he's he's in a bunch of movies. He's in um, he's in a Clockwork Orange. He's in oh, yeah. Red Sonia. Uh, he's probably in other movies with colors in the title. <laughs> but he um I, he's, and a mountain, he's a mountain of a man. Let's not oh, let's, a, let's make yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, he makes the first guy with the sword, the scimitar look small <laughs> yeah yeah and he's rugged he's muscular yeah. just looks like Robust, a tough yeah. dude and apparently he paid he played one of the thugs in the um with like with different makeup and probably maybe a fake mustache and turban and stuff in the bar fight earlier in the movie that would so, make sense uh, okay reusing that's smart that's that's good budgeting <laughs> yeah <laughs> but a great thing here that they do is that they don't like modern action heroes can do anything like you know they're uh, uh, martial arts experts Indy obviously can handle himself in a fight, but is clearly outmatched by this guy. You know, he gets he literally gets his knees buckled by one punch and and he and he falls down. I mean, he is very outmatched. And in the end, it's only the the luck of, you know, the the big German dude losing track of the plane, which has now started to rotate, getting behind him and obviously gets cut up by the rotor, which is, um, again, one of those scenes that very memorable, especially as a kid. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and and one that I think was, I think was homaged in, um, I think it's the first Captain America movie where Cap is on a plane and there's like guys trying to climb up, um, and the cl- plane's climbing and one of the guys right. falls and goes into the rotor. Um, right. But um, but again, great scene. You know, the plane ends up blowing up, yep. and the, you know, Indy ends up taking off on a uh, on a horse after uh, the truck with the Ark in it, which. Maybe the most iconic scene in the entire movie is the truck chase. I don't know that what, do you, what do you hell, think? I mean, I, that I compare that that fight scene, chase scene, because it is kind of a chase scene. Sure. To um, uh, the Last Crusade when they're kind of almost in a similar territory with the, tanks, yeah. with the tank, and that was just you know that was one hell of a fight scene. And then again, that shows you know in in that instance what you just touched on indiana's vulnerability as a kind of a normal action hero someone who can take a punch but also can get really hurt by a punch yeah and, and yeah yeah sorry were you going to say something no else? no 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 i was just you know kind of equating those two they did a really good job in both films of having some two really good chase scenes with a lot of fighting in it yeah and uh there's obviously the you know him being dragged behind the truck, which Harrison Ford famously did himself, um, right. obviously not at high speeds, but um, it is interesting too when you watch. There's because he starts, he gets thrown through the windshield, and he's hanging onto the front grate, the 
the grill of the yeah. truck, and then he ends up going underneath. When they show, and that's not Harrison Ford underneath doing the, right. you know, sliding along, but you can see the trench when that's dug for the for the stuntman. Right. Um, so in that instance, it's it's quick. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So he's he's. But then actually being pulled behind the truck, that was Harrison Ford. He yeah. Did that. Um. So again, another one of those just really memorable scenes that the people always think about with this movie um is him uh you know being dragged behind the truck and again showing that he is a not a perfect hero gets shot in the arm um by uh by like the one there's like one german guy i don't know if he's like one of the commanders or something but that is more determined than the rest um and ends up in a good fight with him. But yeah, and that guy's nasty too. He gets shot and he gets shot in the arm. Dude jumps in the cab of the truck with him and punches him right in the bullet wound. It's like, right, that, right, right. There, I just remember like, being a kid and being like, oh my God, that's metal. Right. That's, that's, right. That, that's sadistic as fuck, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The injury or the infirm and then having that be, you know, trying to, trying to take him out even further. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, but that was a cool thing because I think that was the first time a movie showed me that, oh, you can get shot and not die. And that was something, you know, going back to our last episode of G.I. Joe, yeah. like when I would play, it'd be like, oh, OK, you know, a guy gets shot in the arm and he's out for a while or whatever. I would actually use that in my G.I. Joe play because I was like, oh, OK, I guess you can sure. get shot and not die. I think right, as a younger kid, you think, oh, you get shot, you're dead. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we see him as, you know, again, not an infallible hero, but one who does come through in the end. Um then we get another, you know, another interesting character is uh, is introduced in the captain, um, Katanga, um, who's going to get the Ark and Indian uh, Marion away. And um, he's one of those characters that when you're first introduced to him, you're like, OK, Sala trusts him. But it, this is obviously kind of a pirate type crew and, you know, yeah. uh, maybe up to some nefarious things. But, you know, so you don't know if you can trust him. And That's then a- you get. I, I just want to chime in right with that yeah. point because when you first see him, you know, he's I think what he's in the in the foreground in Indy and Sala on the background, and you and you see him in his little captain's cap and his little typical seafaring sweater. Yeah, lighting up a cigarette. He lights a cigarette, and you and it's a very that struck me as like I don't think we can trust him because I had forgotten about his you know where his allegiance actually lied. So I was at that moment when I realized that okay. That's a really interesting way of posing him. He's kind of not involved in their conversation, but he's smoking a cigarette, and you see just the 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 light of the of the match or the lighter light his face, and it's like, okay, what's going on here? But that was a good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it turns out he is he is trustworthy, and um, you know, is able to to help them because when they get you know the the Nazi submarine stops them, um, and also we get a nice one of the only quiet scene, intimate scenes with Marion and, and Indy. Um, and I think it highlights they, um, Karen Allen and, and Harrison Ford have very good chemistry. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a quiet scene. And again, we get a laugh in there too, because she's trying to look, look in the mirror, you know, at, at the dress that she got from the captain and, and Indy's looking at his injuries and she spins the mirror and, you know, presumably knocks him under the chin and, um, <laughs> you know, they get a quiet moment together and then he falls asleep. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The uh, the Nazi submarine stops them. You know, they take Marion. Um, Indy is able to hide. Uh, Katanga does an interesting thing. He covers it, says we killed Jones, you know, we, yeah. and, um, you know, but leave us the girl. Uh, yeah. He's trying to 
he's trying to help them. Right, and buy time um, and try to divert and yeah. get the Nazis off the boat as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, knowing that he's not going to be able to stop them from taking the Ark, but if he can keep them from taking Indy and Marion, then, right. then that's you know something, and then they can figure out from there. So, um, so he does end up being trustworthy, which is which is good. That's a it's a neat. It's it's a cool way, like you were saying, how they introduce him to where yeah. he ends up, because you do get that glimmer of doubt. It's like, ah, uh, is this guy, is this guy a double cross? You know, someone right, who, right, who no, can't it, trust. Right, and as, as I'm sure you're probably gonna, you know, say in just a moment, when it is revealed where Indy is, how Indy is, because they, he, the the captain basically says, um, search the ship again. He has to be here. And then lo right. and behold, a few moments later. Uh, we see the U-boat beginning to, you know, take speed and take off from from the sh- from the ship, and then there's Indiana sp- spotted by one of the, the longshoremen crawling up on the side, and then you know Indiana kind of gives the cheer like I'm on, I'm, I made it, which is again insane. He's trying to get, get into a moving submarine, <laughs> right? Which they but never they, show how he does. You just no. like, uh, okay, he he does somehow. I or, was conf- confused by that because I'm like, okay, once they shut the hatch, there's no way of getting to that submarine. <laughs> Because that submarine yeah. is not going to travel, you know, in pre-war times on the surface. On the they're, surface, right. Yeah, they're gonna, they, they only pop up for fresh air and supplies normally, even during non-war times, and then go back under. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he, cl- like, Indy climbs up on a thing, and he's looking around, presumably looking for a hatch. But it is one of those right. things where you're like, and all then, right, somehow he's he's fine. <laughs> and then you, and then you see the, the, the support from the... The, the ship, the, the merchant ship sh- crew and the captain, when they're all kind yeah, of they cheer. them on, yelling and, and, and celebrating. So, you know, at that point that, that they were in full alignment on the same side, which, which was nice to get that kind of closure on that on that scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so uh, cut to, to Indy, you know, inside they've they've brought the submarine to the island where they're going to perform the um, the ceremony to open the ark. Um, you know, the, the submarine has come through. We see Indy has, has made it there and then does something that I had never before seen in a movie and was brilliant. He encounters uh, a German officer, knocks him out, takes his uniform and which is which had been done in movies since movies were being made. You know, you take you knock the bad guy out, you take their uniform, except Indy goes to put it on and it doesn't fit. It's too small and it's right. brilliant. It's brilliant. And and also too, and and I think and that's a really amazing point that you that you um, mentioned that because uh, another 80s film which we'll eventually get to, Die Hard. You know, we we've got um, we've got uh, uh, John McClane, uh, Bruce Willis's character, putting on the shoes of a of a a preserved German adversary, and the shoes are too small. So right. again, right. this film has influenced well beyond its years other major blockbuster films in various points, whether whether overtly done or just happenstance. Subtle like, nods. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, so they begin to take the arc um, through to, to where they're going to perform this. Um, we get the scene where Indy is up on the bluff ahead of them. He's got an RPG um, and he threatens yeah. to blow up the arc. That scene is is uh, shot in the same place they shot in A New Hope, R2, R2 R2D2 getting zapped by the Jawas. So, right. Okay. That's right. What, what was that? Tunisia or? Tunisia, yep. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yep. Yep. In Africa. So, um, yeah. Um, so great scene there. Um, Indy ultimately can't bring himself to do it uh, and is captured. Uh, he can't bring himself to destroy the Ark um, because Belloc has that great 
little speech where he talks about, you know, you and I are passing through history. This is history. Great line. And, and again, Belloc, such a good character, great performance by Paul Freeman because – and he even says it in that when Indy's getting drunk after Marion has died. They're not very different. It's their means that are different, but their love right. for archaeology and history is very much in tune. It's not unlike Magneto and Professor X where you've mm-hmm. got – Two people with with a lot of things that align, but their methods don't. Um, right. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. So it's a great great scene there. Um, uh, but Indy's Indy's captured. He and Marion are tied up uh, up above where they're gonna open the um, Belloc is gonna perform this ceremony to open the Ark. And of course, you get the amazing scene where at first the Ark. Uh, I think it's Dietrich is the name of the the German officer, puts his hand in there. We haven't seen in. We don't know what's in there. Puts his hand in, comes up with sand, and it just runs through, and he's furious. And you think, oh, wow, okay, all of this was – I mean, yeah, the Ark, you have the artifact, but what was perceived as being inside it for power is not. But then, of course, we see it start to swirl, and and, um, the ghosts come out. uh, Yes. I know a lot of people talk about the the melting faces of of Tote and Dietrich and and Bell, Belloc's head pretty much explodes. Oh, it does. Um, but the, those like they're very again very gory graphic stuff for for what was perceived as a family movie right. like the melting faces. I know a lot of people say that gave them nightmares. That didn't bother me. The ghosts bothered me. Um, like the one that comes up and gets in. I think it's Dietrich's face and and it's like it's like almost like a, a woman and like kind of you know green right. and 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 then suddenly transforms into the to the skull that that scared oh, me I mean, as a kid those were very ominous to be part perfect honest. i mean i looked at that and i'm like okay we know that these are ghosts or spirits and we know that they're 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 hidden within the ark itself they're responsible for probably how the power is you know used and then you get to start to see how quickly they're moving around and how violent that you know some of their their interactions with ghosts are and their deaths yes yeah yeah and then the you know the there's a big lightning and and you know essentially power courses through almost like chain right. lightning through each of the the nazis there and of course you know indy tells marion not to look and and they they keep their eyes right. shut tight while all this is going on and that keeps them safe um which is an interesting thing too it's like well how would he know that? Like, and why would that necessarily keep you safe? But that's another one of those things you just kind of yeah, go with. But it is it is an interesting thing. It's like ah, okay. <laughs> but you but, but in that scene when you get you know the kind of the close-ups of the ghosts' faces or their visages, you know again reminds me of uh, the movie that's right on the cusp of this from Poltergeist that you know sure. Spielberg was involved with. So you kind of get to see almost uh, some of the same whatever graphics or digital graphics they use to kind of create that because you see that throughout the Poltergeist series of those similar styled ghosts of kind of these eerie looming. And even with, you know, Ghostbusters to a degree, some of the characters later on resembled some of the ghostly features that you see in this film. Yeah. Yep. Great point. Um, speaking of Poltergeist, we'll have to, um, we'll have to do that movie down the road because I, I think that movie's underrated. I, I hadn't seen that movie in a long time. I watched it a couple years ago, and then now I've since watched it several other times because nice. I, I think that's a great movie. Um, Fantastic and, film. Scary. Yeah, so very scary. It is, yeah. It's, yeah, some great performances. We'll, yeah, we'll even get to the, that even, one. That's funny. Even the second one was disturbing. I mean there, 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 there yeah. are just certain disturbing aspects of each of those films that you know stick with you till today, and it's, it's – very unsettling, and you know, not to talk about my love of tequila on the show, but yeah, that second film in the worm, ooh, or no, the first oh. film in the worm, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, we'll we'll get. I'm sure we'll get to Poltergeist at some point. <laughs> uh, so Indian Marion, um, everything, the Ark, like there's the the giant pillar of flame and lightning that goes up to the heavens, and right. and the top of the Ark comes down and closes, and suddenly everything's quiet. Indian Marion find that their their ropes are severed. They're they're free. Um, again, another one of those questions I've never asked. How do they get back? Like the next scene cuts to them in Washington, and it's right. like how how did they get back? Right, because they came there, and you only get to see a select number of, you know, Nazi brown shirt soldiers that are witnessing the, you know, the the kind of uh, event that Bellica is trying to do the ritual. And again, it wasn't quite clear what the, you know, we, we, we see earlier in the film when the whatever army is holding the 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 ark, the beams of light go out and shoot them. You know, we weren't quite clear on why. You know, obviously they went to some destination location via submarine. Did did the the ritual, but uh, there wasn't really an enemy presented right there. So that that was. I think yeah, they they kind of have a quick line about it. Belloc, uh, Dietrich, the the Nazi officer says, yeah. I'm uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual. And Belloc said, Would you be happier opening it in front of your your Führer and only then finding out if the Ten Commandments are inside? So, okay, so they were trying to do like, like okay, a test run. A test run. Okay, <laughs> okay, I missed that. That's a really good yeah. point. Um, but yeah, they got they get there by submarine. They're obviously in a slightly decertified, you know, raised location with you know rock structures. But you know, I'm assuming there was a number of people still on the sub to operate it, like the captain, because we didn't see him, um, you know, True. at the at the event. So yeah, how did they get back? <laughs> That's a yeah. really good question. Yeah. But um, regardless, they end up back. And um, again, the the government operatives uh, from earlier in the film are there. Um, they tell you know Indy and Brody that um, you know they've they've got quote unquote top men working on it. And uh, right. you know obviously India is upset because they it's obviously a, a monumental historical find. And right. um, and and he's got no say in where it ends up. And you know so we we get that. Um, famous scene at the end where it's it's loaded into a crate and uh, uh-huh. packed into a massive warehouse among thousands of other crates so just a a, a great ending um to and even it, though it's it's not satisfying for the hero right. but it it almost feels like the right ending too because of the whole bureaucratic nature of, right. of things because because you know they definitely show you know obviously the the uh, warehouse guy wheeling it down a very long path and as the camera kind of pulls out you see you know, there are thousands and thousands of crates of what I perceive to be like government procured, you know, artifacts and rare things kind of logging away. But then also, again, how this movie has influenced culture through time. There's a Family Guy episode. I think it's one of the James Woods episodes where they basically, you know, are, you know at the, they're always I think it was Peter, Peter and Brian trying to coax uh James Woods trying to coax him with candy. Ooh, another piece, <laughs> right, of, candy. Right, piece of candy. So, right. and they trap him. And I think one of the scenes of one of those episodes, they are doing the same exact thing. They're wheeling uh, James Woods character that's <laughs> in a crate down a long thing. And that's, and, and I remembered both of those happening, but I, but I had forgotten about the, 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 to a degree, the ending of um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then, Oh, that's where that spurred that on. So obviously that's right, a, right. a modern day cultural nod to this film. Seth MacFarlane doing a good job of um, ending this, the show, like just like they ended the film, so. <laughs> right, right. Oh, one thing I wanted to touch on real quick, I forgot before, but you do get earlier in the movie a, a hint that there is a supernatural power to the Ark, uh, and that's when it's on the boat, uh, Katanga's boat, and it's in the hold, and the Nazi 
eagle and yes. um, swastika are burned away by some right. unknown force. So so you do get a hint there that that there is there is supernatural power to the right. arc. So um, you know you're maybe not as surprised at the end when um, when things uh, when shit gets real. Um, but uh, yeah, just uh, this is one that I can I can watch anytime. Um, yeah. I think it I think it holds up incredibly well. It's a period piece to begin with, so right. things aren't are are, are automatically going to look outdated because you're talking about the 1930s. So right. it's never going to suffer from that. Um, I just I just think it holds up incredibly well. You've got amazing performances by the entire cast, unbelievable action sequences. The direction is phenomenal. The soundtrack is phenomenal. I, 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 a few you know nitpicks here and there that I've talked right. about like how did they do this how did they do a few of those things aside easily forgettable minor, in minor, the overall yeah masterpiece minor inconsistencies across the board and I think that that speaks volumes of the quality of the, the and the caliber of the film that you know I think we may have mentioned maybe only four of those instances like well how do they get out of the situation or how do they get from point A to point B um I you know in doing some of the research on this which is always um anything that we do we we, we kind of deep dive and try to you know pull up little bits and tidbits of information. I'm really glad I didn't know this that the you know, the kind of the original not script but the original storyline contained it was supposed to be the adventures of Indiana Smith. That doesn't yes. roll very well. <laughs> Indiana Smith, you know, a typical American English name. Uh, Indiana Smith is just it it doesn't roll. It, 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 it's almost like you you're you know, the adventures of Indiana Smith and you hit a wall. Indiana Jones <laughs> flows more. Maybe it's because we have more of the associative uh, connection to it, having seen it so many times over the years, but yeah, the adventures of Indiana Smith does, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. At yeah, all. you're right. It, <laughs> and that's a good change. And, and it is funny how little things like that can end up, yeah. what seems like maybe a small decision ends up being a big decision later on down the road. Yeah, but you're right. Totally. Yeah. That name doesn't, it just doesn't flow. It doesn't have the same. And again, you know, obviously history now, but, but it, I, it's, yeah, I don't, I, it wouldn't have worked <laughs> as well. Right. No, it's just none weird. whatsoever. And then, you know, and then the uh, and I know we've talked about this before because we, we talked about, you know, some early you know 80s TV shows and two films that were directly or two uh, TV series that were short lived, you know, Curse of the Golden Monkey and Bring Him Back yes. Alive took that took the, the adventuring form, the mold of the Indiana Jones style yeah. character in various exotic locales and doing these kind of adventures and one-offs and going up against various nefarious organizations and the Nazis and, and the Japanese. So yeah, this, this film culturally has influenced so many things known and unknown and, and to yet to be determined because they, they've, I'm sure there's going to be nods in the future in film and in TV um, of how important the scenes and the characters and the, and the music and the direction of this film was. Yeah, absolutely. We'll wrap up here, but just did want to mention one thing that one thing that's interesting about this film. This is not a film that became a cult classic. This film was an instant blockbuster. It was the highest grossing film in 1981. Um, just immediate, immediate hit. Right. The world, so, the world needed that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, apparently. Because you know, because I'm, lo- I'm just you know, looking at you know, they were comparing it, you know, Superman two esque, you know, in the, in the same. Well, genre. I think money wise, I think that's, I think yeah. Superman two was, uh, and that's definitely a film we'll do this year. Yep. Um, you know, that was, I think, the second highest grossing yeah. that year. But yeah, uh, and yeah, hadn't really that old 
old-timey serial-style adventures hadn't been done, and and I think it was, and obviously did so well that it spawned a ton of imitators. I mentioned, you know, the Quigley Down Under one. The yeah. big ones that came to mind were Romancing the Stone, which was Absolutely. which was a hit, and actually a yeah. movie I I hadn't seen that movie in decades, and I watched that's a great it film. And, 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 that's a that's a fun action film. And Jewel of the Nile is good, not as good as Romancing the Stone, but good. Yeah, you know, again, yeah. you know, the same kind of spectrum and motif of, you know, jewels and yeah. organizations. Yeah. 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 yeah, good stuff. Yeah. I'm really good. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, just just a great, great film. Always a good watch. I, I this is I don't know. I, it's hard for me to rank movies because my my natural inclination is to say oh this is a top 10 for me for all of all time right maybe i don't know i if i sat and thought about it maybe not quite top 10 but easily top 20 it's um absolutely it's it's just an amazing film and again i'm a huge harrison ford fan so so that helps but that um, helps (laughs) yeah yeah raiders of the lost ark if you if you didn't watch it before listening to us, and I would hope you would watch it and revisit it. That way, you can go over, you know, the things we talk about. But if you haven't seen it in a while and just listened, I do go back and watch it because yeah. it's 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 just a fun it's a fun movie. It's um and just I I always I'm always entertained by it, and that I think that speaks volumes because it's you know it's 40 years old at this point, yeah. and I've seen it so many times, and it's I'm I'm never bored watching that. And it, and it stood the test of time too, which I which is which is remarkable because you know we, we've gotten more recent films and TV series. I mean, the one off the top of the head was, I think, what, The Librarian on TNT? There's been a couple. Of, right. Yeah, and yep. then there's the, the Nicolas Cage one. Yeah, which the I National know, Treasure. Yeah, yep. that, have, yep. that have, again, taken a you know a modern-day blockbuster, even though I think what Noah Wiley is for The Librarian is not blockbuster. Good actor, you know, no question about that. But, you know, Nick Cage in, in, in his role for um, National Treasure – uh, very similar in, you know, in, in that. To some degree, to Da Vinci Code and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but if you hold those up against the benchmark, uh, the, you know, the seminal Raiders film, there, there, there's really light years between them. I mean, the, you, there are nods in those films, clearly, with, you know, the adventures and, you know, the, the tasks at hand and the, and the nemesis that they – and protagonists and antagonists. But at large, it's very difficult in, I, to not – make those associations, but at the same point, try to appreciate them, but also know that they're all kind of just extensions of the Raiders. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhat derivative. Yep. Very much so. Sure. Awesome. Well, uh, that was our, that was our look at Raiders of the Lost Ark and, um, Brad and I are rolling along here. We're, we're usually able to get these out every month because, you know, it's just the two of us. Um, so it's not as difficult to schedule as other shows that, you know, have a bunch of people. And, you know, we're usually able to do it early on a weekend morning. So we're going to we're going to keep plugging along for uh, through 2021 and, and take a look back at some of these great movies from 81, which are celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. And we'll talk about some other stuff this year, too, some some uh, music and tying into music. You know what d- debuted in 1981 that we need to talk about, Brad? MTV. Mm. Oh my God. Yeah. And perfect. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll talk about MTV at some point this year, but um, but yeah, I'm excited. We've we we've got tons of more awesome oh 80s God. stuff to talk about, and and Infinite I always have so much boxes. fun. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's amazing. So I always have a, a fun time doing this show with you, Brad. So I appreciate your time as always. I appreciate yours. Thank you for having me again. It's great. Yeah. 
My pleasure. We will come back again in another month. I hope, uh, listeners, you will join us as well. Uh, until then, I just want to remind you, I'm Ian Clark, that's Brad Anderson, and it belongs in a museum. to Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast with Ian Clark and Brad Anderson. We are a part of the Freebooters Network. Check out thefreebootersnetwork.com to listen to all the awesome podcasts on the network. We also invite you to check out our sponsor, Geek Nation Tours, at geeknationtours.com and interact with our Facebook page, ask questions, offer comments, and critiques. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.